Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning church. It is uh, good to be together on this Christmas Eve. I want to also welcome you if it's your first time with us. I'm seeing a number of visitors this morning. Uh, it is a joy for us to have you with us this morning. Uh, and we have prayed that the Lord would uh, bless you in, uh, in the service uh, with us uh, this morning. Uh, we are, you have visited us in the middle of a, our Advent series, where we are discussing and answering the question, why did Jesus come? For what, pers- for what purpose was Jesus born as a man uh, and come to the earth? Uh, Jesus, having lived in eternity past, uh, full of joy and wonder and, and love with his Father, according to the gospel of, according to the, well, the entire scriptures, uh, he, he had no need, uh, no, no, re- no need to become a human being and participate in human struggles and participate in human weakness and be born and be at the mercy of men and their kindness as to where he's going to even be born. Uh, he, he had no need for any of that. So why go through this entire trouble? What's the purpose? Why come to the earth? Why put yourself, um, being God, being the one who created everything, why put yourself through that entire rigmarole? And we have seen in the scriptures that Jesus came uh, with clarity to achieve a specific task. Now, I'd posit to you, dear friend, if you're here this morning and if you're not a believer in Christ or you're searching, you have questions about Christianity, I'd say to you one of the clearest reasons that you cannot ignore Jesus Christ of Nazareth is because of his own self-awareness of his mission. Think with me for a moment. Many leaders and many people who have names that we all know and are taught about in school, many of those people are glorified and deified later after their exploits. Their greatness or the fact that they are great in some shape or form comes later when other people write about them. They even write, you know, these these biographies that are just flowery. They write about these people and say things about these men. If you think about men like Nelson Mandela or Mahatma Gandhi or anybody like that, these men, a lot of them would have never said that there's something special about them. It's others who have elevated them to high praise. Not so with Jesus Christ. Jesus came like a conqueror bent on conquest. He had a mission and those who listened to him heard from him what his mission was. 
He described his mission, as we have heard already in this December series, that his mission was to save that which was lost. We've explored that already. We've also heard him tell us that his mission is to free from the slavery of sin. That he has come to free people who are in bondage to iniquity and transgression, only doing what is evil. And he has come to break those chains of iniquity. And we saw last week that his mission was also to come and destroy all the works of the evil one. He has come to destroy all the works that Satan uh, had accomplished on the earth. We saw that like last week. And as we close the series today, we come to the biggest one that summarizes all of Jesus' work. The category, the biggest category, the most fundamental category of what Jesus came to do. And that is, Jesus came, his mission was to give up his life for his people. My wife and I are big fans of Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible movies. You know those films? Um, If you're familiar with those films, you'll know that at the beginning of every movie, the spy agency sends a message to Ethan Hunt and says to him, this is your mission should you choose to accept it. And then, then there follows a complicated deluge of things that, he, that this spy is going to have to do and those things are going to entertain us for two hours. And it's all complicated. It's usually complicated and they have to do detours and do all different kinds of things in order to achieve what it is that his mission is. Unlike that, Christ's mission was uncomplicated. Christ's mission was a simple one. Born and be born and die. But don't just die at any time throughout your life. It's not like Jesus could have died from some disease that came about because of the Middle Eastern heat or he could have died because of a rock climbing accident at some point just randomly throughout his 33 years. No, no, no. It was to die at a specific time to achieve a specific purpose. His death was not haphazard. It wasn't like, it, his death was to die at the time determined by the Father. Now Jesus explains his mission of coming to die using three metaphors that I want us to consider this morning. And then I'll let you go to your Sunday roast. Three, three metaphors that the Lord Jesus himself uses to explain his mission in pictorial terms for us to be able to to remember what it is that he's come here to do. There's three pictures, three images that he uses in the scriptures. First, he came to die as a ransom. Second, he came to die as healing, to provide healing in John 3.14. And then thirdly, His death was to produce more fruit. His death was to multiply more people like him. We'll see that in John 12 and verse 20. So three three things. His death was as a ransom. His death was to provide healing. And his death was to multiply. Let's look at the first one, ransom. For that, come with me to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. 
In this passage, the disciples are trying to be arguing about who's greater, who's bigger. They're trying to think about excellence and greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord Jesus says, tells them that they are to serve one another, that they are to be those who serve. And then he uses himself as the chief example of that service that they are to uh, provide for each other. This is what he says in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying that even I'm telling you, my disciples, don't think in categories of you are a big thing, you ought to be served all the time, because even myself, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve by giving my life as a ransom for many, as a payment for many. Now when Jesus says that he has come to give his life as a payment, a ransom for many, he is saying that he has left heaven to come to earth to pay a price. He has, his, he has appeared for the purpose of paying a certain price. And then he tells us the, current, the, 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 the price. The price is his life. He's not come here to build a massive kingdom, uh, you know, have a, a huge, uh, you know, like Solomon, have a huge kingdom in the Middle East somewhere and then use the proceeds, money from that kingdom to pay this price. No, no, no. He tells us that his own life is the price that he has come to pay. Now, in what situation, now think with me for a second. In what situation is the price for something someone's life? In what situation is the currency life? What debt or what purchase is it that is made where that for you to make this purchase, you come with your life. You know, normally if you, if you've, you know, if you're in Johannesburg and you, you're coming and you, you, you're going to buy something at, at pick and pay, you can either use your discovery points. That's currency. You can also use RANDs. You can also use U-Count, your standard bank U-Count points. You can use all these different things that are currency that is accepted. Well, in what transaction is someone's life the price that is required for something? Well, the original hearers of this, as Jesus is saying this, would have known that in Israel, the primary place where someone has to pay with their life is when somebody has committed a capital crime. Do you understand what I mean by capital crime? So when somebody has, has committed a crime such that you are no longer allowed to live after committing this crime. If you commit this crime, you pay with your own life. This, of course, goes all the way back to Genesis with what God said to Noah. God said to Noah that if one person takes another person's life, then that person's life should be required from them as payment. If you do something so if you do something as evil as killing somebody else because you were mad at them because you felt passionate or whatever it is and you killed somebody else God said all the way back to Noah that your life will be required for you as payment 
In other words, the price that God has set on another person's life is the one who took that life. It's the person who's, ta- who's taken the life. That person's life must be given. But of course, murder is not the only capital crime in the Scriptures. Murder is the, is, the, is the chief one, but it's not the only capital crime by which you pay, wi- you pay with your life if you have committed it. There are at least 28 capital crimes in the Old Covenant that require your death. So if you commit these crimes, you will be killed in the Old Covenant law. Here are, here are some of them. Kidnapping. If you kidnapped somebody, and especially if you kidnapped somebody and then you went and sold them, you'd be killed. Child sacrifice. You sacrifice your child, you'd be killed. Both the man and the woman who commit adultery. If the, a man and a woman are caught committing adultery, both of them are killed. If you rape a woman as a man, you're killed. Deuteronomy 22 verse 25. You're killed almost instantly. The daughter of a priest who becomes a prostitute is killed. An idolater, one who is found in Israel worshipping other gods, is killed. If you break the Sabbath, you are killed. If you have, uh, if you commit fornication, Deuteronomy 22 verse 21 to 22. Uh, if you commit a fornication, you're killed. Homosexuality, killed. A man and his father's wife who have, who commit incest, killed. A man and his daughter-in-law commit incest, killed. A man who marries a woman and her mother, all three of them killed. Bestiality is a capital crime. A false prophet, a false witness, a disobedient son. A son who disobeys his father, Deuteronomy 21 tells us, you are to be killed by the elders. A child who strikes his father or mother, if you lay your hand as a child on your father and your mother, you were to be killed. A child who curses with his mouth, his mother or father. If you say anything against your mother or father that, that amounts to a curse, you would have been killed in Israel. A sangoma of any of whatever kind, medium or spiritist or a sorceress, that person would have been killed. A man whose ox kills someone after previously goring other people. So a person who's reckless with their animals and allowing other people to be killed by his own animals, that person would have been killed. And any non-Levite who tried to set up or take down the tabernacle, anybody who touched holy things in a manner that was not allowed for them, they would have been killed. This is a long list. That's just a sampling of it. But I hope you can hear that when you're hearing this, there are a lot of capital crimes. And I wonder how many of you sitting here would have been already killed in Israel? This is actually worse, because when I'm using the word how many of you, I actually know the answer. The answer is not some of you, the answer is all of you. The answer is every single one of you here would have been killed. Here's why. The Bible says that generally all people are guilty of these. Jesus arrives and says that if someone has committed any of these in his heart, he is guilty before God of a capital crime. So you might have survived in Israel, still living, but before God, you were as good as having already committed a capital crime. Jesus says, if you haven't physically murdered anyone, you are not off the hook by cursing someone when you're angry, by giving somebody the silent treatment 
treating them as though they are dead, you are as guilty before, and you will be liable before the hell of fire. He's saying before God's judgment, before God's court of law, you have committed a capital crime. He says the same thing about adultery. He says, if you commit adultery, if you look at, a, at another person with lustful intent in your heart, whether on a screen or anywhere else, you look at them with lustful intent in your heart, you have committed what you have done. It amounts to the sin of adultery in heaven's court. And in general, the Old Testament, in general, actually, and if you still think, well, maybe I'm safe, of, I'm safe from those I haven't committed much adultery or I haven't really cursed anybody, haven't really given anybody, you know, silent treatment, whatever. Well, listen to what God says in 1 Samuel 15 verse 23. He says, rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. So rebellion is like the sin of divination. Meaning, if you've rebelled against God, lived your own way, not done what God tells you as a matter of living, it is as though you're, you're exactly like the Sangoma. You deserve the same judgment as the Sangoma, in a, according to this. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Have you ever been full of yourself? Ever thought about others being lower than you? Oh, look at these plebs with IQs of 30. Have you ever felt that? I'm making it humorous, but you know what I mean when you feel that feeling of superiority of others or feel that feeling of, I can do this, I've got this, you're beating your chest. The Bible calls that arrogance, and it is, as li- it is like the sin, the evil of idolatry. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this to bring you back to what Jesus is saying. Jesus says his life is enough to pay the price that is required to free the people that have committed all capital crimes. If I am talking to people who have committed capital crimes, and I am, Jesus' life is enough to pay for your capital crime breaking. If I'm talking to people who owe a debt of their own lives to God because of the sins that they've committed, and I am, then Jesus' life is enough to pay that debt. That's what Jesus is saying. I've come to pay the debt that all of you owe. And I've come to pay the debt for though for the many who come to him. A man tells this story about his rich friend. Apparently there was a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across to the continent of Europe to go on a holiday. And while he was driving around Europe, uh, something happened to the motor of his Rolls Royce. So he called uh, Rolls Royce uh, people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car, what do you suggest I do? And the Rolls Royce people flew a mechanic over, isn't that nice? They, they just put a mechanic on a plane and say, go to this guy. And the mechanic came, arrived to him somewhere where he is on the continent of Europe and repaired the car. And then the mechanic flew back to England and left the man to continue his holiday. And as you can imagine, the, the fellow was wondering, how much is this going to cost me? 
So when he got back to England, he wrote the people a letter and said, how much do I owe you for that whole expense of sending a mechanic over to fix my car? And he received a letter from the office that read, Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. Friends, this is what Jesus came to do. Now, you will not know this experience because, I mean, I don't know who here... <laughs> I don't know who here might own a Rolls Royce. I don't know. I'm sorry to say, did I crush your dreams? I'm sorry. This is what Jesus came to do, though. He paid the price for the sins of many. And, it is a, and in the records of heaven, it is a, it's as though the records, the filing system in heaven has been jumbled up and your sin has been lost. Where is it? We, we have no record of it. We know you as perfect, holy, undefiled. What are you talking about? What sin are you talking about? What payment? No, but I lied there, I sinned there, I, I fornicated there, I watched pornography there, I did this there. We have no idea what you're talking about. Please, come in, wear this white robe, and stop your talking. That's what happens. Because Jesus' life is enough to pay that ransom. That's what he came to do. That's the first image. The first image, when Jesus talks about his, his mission, of why he came regarding his death. He says, I've come with my life to pay a price. Second image, he has come to provide healing. Come with me to John 3, verse 14. John 3, verse 14. This is in the middle of a conversation where the Lord Jesus is discussing with Nicodemus at night. Nicodemus has come to quiz the Lord Jesus about uh, spiritual matters in the, the dark of night. And Jesus is talking to him and explaining to him how salvation is to be achieved, what's going to have to happen. And then he says this in verse 14 of John 3. This is two verses before the famous John 3.16 verse. He says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son be lifted up, the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, Jesus, what are you talking about Moses lifting up a serpent? What does that, that metaphor, that, that, that callback, what is that trying to bring to our minds? Well, we need to see the Old Testament passage that Jesus is talking about here. So now come with me to Numbers 21. And I want to show you the passage that the Lord Jesus is referring to. That the image, you need to see the image, this picture uh, is the one that is uh, found in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 6. 
The, uh, this is after the people have been grumbling and complaining. Um, well, actually, you know what? Let me just read it from, from the beginning of their grumbling and complaining so you can see the, the full context here. From verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. This is the people of Israel that have just been recently freed by God from Egypt. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent and if somebody had been bitten by a serpent he would look at this bronze serpent and live. The Israelites had complained and rebelled against God and they started speaking against God and started speaking against Moses and then God sends them this judgment these snakes these fiery snakes which is commiserate with their complaining. And then the people went to their mediator, to Moses, and asked Moses to pray for them. And Moses prayed for them, and God commanded Moses to lift the serpent so that the people would be healed. I want you to notice two things from this story. First, I want you to note, who is it that brought the sickness? In the story, who is it that brought the sickness? It was God. Did you notice this? God had brought these snakes as judgment. These horrific snakes that were killing people. He is the one who had brought them, leading them to death in response to their own sin. Now you might ask, wow, sending snakes to kill people that you had just, you've just rescued these people. You're sending all these snakes to kill them. Isn't that a bit harsh? I mean, what did they do? Well, here it is. This is what they'd done. They'd complained. They'd grumbled against him. Now, you might say, well, hold on now. We complain all the time. Complaining is a South African pastime, you know. When you meet a South African and you want to interact with them just to have some kind of camaraderie, you're going to decide. You have, it's almost like you have a choice. Is it load shedding? Is it the roads? Is it the government? Is it the heat these days? Just let's find something to complain about and then we'll be buddies. We complain all the time. Is, is complaining and grumbling about hard circumstances that bad, really? Is it really that bad that God would send snakes to bite people and die a horrific death? You know, when you're dying, the, the snakes with their different poisons kill you in different ways. Some of them make your blood coagulate, others do uh, horrific, they, they just do horrific things to you. Why would God do such a thing? 
I'll answer you by saying this. Anyone who thinks that complaining is a small matter, is a small matter, has not thought properly about what the sin of complaining and grumbling is. You have not thought properly. If you think that complaining and grumbling about hard circumstances is just a normal thing, you have not thought properly about what you're doing when you're complaining and grumbling. Haven't thought about it. Complaining and grumbling is an accusation against God. It is stating that God does not know how to treat people and that you know better. That if God had any sense, my situation would be a bit better and more comfortable right now. If God had any sense, if God had his thinking cap on straight, my situation would be better. Grumbling is saying that God needs my help in organizing the universe. He doesn't know how to handle his affairs. He needs me to tell him. Grumbling is making ultimate human actions. That is, it's raising human actions to an ultimate state. Yes, Friends, you may be where you are because so-and-so did this or so-and-so didn't do that. But really and ultimately, you are where you are because God has ordained it. He has not just allowed it. No, he has ordained it. You are exactly where God determined you would be in eternity past. You are not an inch different. You're not a centimeter off. The plan is exactly as it is, and you are exactly where God wants you. To grumble and complain is to blame the universe, the maker of the universe, of miscalculation. Let me help the maker of the universe with his calculus. He's confused about how to organize my life. You are to grumble and to, and to complain is to blame the maker of the universe of weakness, is to blame him, even worse, of lying. To you Christians, I say, there are very few sins that are worse than grumbling and complaining. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has been redeemed, there are very few things that are worse that you could do than to grumble and complain. Knowing what you know about who God is and what God has done so that you can be saved. That is why, friends, a Christian parent should never tolerate any hint of complaining or grumbling from their child. If you teach your child through the neglect of discipline that complaining and grumbling are acceptable behaviors, do not be surprised when your little angel turns into a devil. Discipline complaining and discipline grumbling out of the child. It's interesting because children who are disciplined for complaining end up being the happiest kids because they learn to be thankful instead of thinking of how things could be better. That's why the Bible often says, be thankful in everything, make your prayers known, but bring them with thankfulness. Thanksgiving, be thankful. Not complaining and grumbling against the hand of God. Uh, my son, Koban, and my wife, Abby, have been reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And when they finished it, uh, we, we watched the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie together. And I was struck by the one kid, Koban's going to correct me later, I forgot the kid's name. 
But I was struck by how the one kid who always wanted more things throughout the movie kept getting unhappier and unhappier. This kid was given whatever they wanted and they kept wanting more and kept wanting more and they were never really and truly happy. That's the truth even with us adults. What is the point? The point is this. God brings snakes as judgment because they complain. But now notice the second thing. When they pray and ask that this be taken away, God doesn't just take it away, but rather he tells Moses to fashion a snake that will be put up as a, on a pole, a high, tall pole, put up so that all the people who are sick from the poison of the snake, all they need to do is come to the vicinity of the pole, look at it, and they'll be healed. All they need to do, after all that horrific sin, after all of that heated grumbling, all they have to do now is rise their heads up and look at that snake. And the effects of judgment will be wiped away from them. They are being healed from the effects of God's judgment in a very simple way. The ransom picture shows us that Christ came to pay a price. This picture shows us that Christ came to heal that which has been inflicted on us by God as a consequence of sin. In other words, your sin is not only paid for, but the judgment effects of it are also wiped away. This is why it is called eternal life. Because the curse, because of the curse, ever since we fell with Eve through the word of a serpent, because of the curse, our lives have been hard slogged. Sin has corrupted us. One of the, one of the horrific things about sin is that not only is sin bad, it, 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 it creates a debt between you and God, but what it also does is that it damages you. It makes you worse. It makes you more susceptible to sin. It's like an addiction. The addiction itself is bad, but then the addiction makes you need the addiction more, and it becomes this vicious cycle. Sin makes you worse. You, you are not what you should be. You can, you know, see ladies are lovely today. It's Christmas Eve. We've got all the wonderful, pretty things on. Guys, gentlemen also, well, not all of you, but gentlemen in general. Some of you need to get married and get some help. Um, we, we all put a premium on how we you know. We put a premium, rightfully so, on how we look and all of this. But if we are ravaged by sin, we are, we are warped. We are limping. If as you see me, you see me and my sin, you'd see a grotesque figure. Think of those, those things in the Lord of the Rings, though I forget what they call those evil, evil, the orcs in, in the, in Lord of the Rings, those ugly things. That's what you'd be seeing if you're just seeing me and my sin. Because we're, it makes us worse. We go to it and it makes us worse and worse. Jesus, when he's lifted high, you look at him. He takes away the effects of that sin. You are now brand new and you have eternal life. All the things that limit life are now removed from you. So now you can live forever. The effects of the curse, gone. Everything that limits life is now removed. You will live forever. 
This body that you have will be remade and you will live in it forever. Rejoicing in the glory of God, serving God in the way that you should, being bright and shining, wearing white robes and, and having no stain of sin. That's what it is to look at Christ. Jesus is saying, look at me and be healed. And, 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 and imagine this simple thing. It's just to look. Here's a, you can look at this mic, right? Here it is. You can look at it. You can look at, here's a mic. Look at it. Done. Healed. Have faith in Christ. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Trust yourself on Him. And you will find a healing that supersedes all of the brokenness that you have experienced. Thirdly and finally, multiplication. Jesus' death would bring multiplication. Come with me to John chapter 12 as we come to a close. John chapter 12. We will read from verse 20, our verse. Our verse, however, is verse 24. But we will read from verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at their feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip, and Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus here speaks of his death as the planting of a grain of wheat. Now I want you to notice a couple of things from what he says. First, he says in verse 24, if the grain of wheat does not die, it remains alone. So here's a grain of wheat. If it does not get killed and be put in the ground, it will not multiply. It will be on its own. If Jesus does not come to die, he remains alone. But in what way does Jesus remain alone? What is Jesus alone in? Well, the context is clear. He is alone as the one who serves the Father, as the one who follows the Father. When Jesus walked the earth, no one else before him or after him had been completely full of the vitality, the life of righteousness. No one else had been entirely holy, serving God out of the fullness of their holiness. The image of the grain of wheat invokes the ideas of nutrition and life. In many ways, when Jesus came, he was the only one alive, the only one living, because he was the only one walking in his purpose, following the Father, connected to his Father in a real way, living after him in a manner that he should. He was the only man who had ever done that. Everyone else, while they lived, they had been dying. From the moment we're born, we're born, growing towards death. Full of sin, full of regret, under the curse. And Jesus says if he remains alive, he will remain alone. But then he says, 
if the grain of wheat dies, it will produce more. Now, if you've ever planted something, you know this to be true. You have to take it and put it on the ground and bury it. It's gone. And only then can it sprout and produce more of its kind. And he says here, much fruit. Notice that the Lord Jesus says this, particularly at a time when some Greeks are searching for him. His answer to some Greeks who are looking for him, and what is distinct about Greeks is that they are not Jewish, they are not following the Lord, they are not connected to the life of Israel that they have because of Yahweh. When some Greeks are looking for him, the first thing that he says is that he must die so that he can produce more followers. He then explains how these followers must follow him from verse 25 and how they must live for him and the Father. But they cannot be followers if he does not die. Friends, Jesus came to pay the capital crime price of many. Jesus came to die to heal those judged because of sin. Jesus here also came to die to produce many others full of the same life that he had. Jesus came to produce more sons and daughters of God who really deserve that name, who actually deserve that name. How often have you been sheepish? Every now and again, I'm a, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you're saying that under your breath because you know you just messed up. But the reality is, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can own that name. Because you will truly, finally, eschatologically, at the end, you will truly be revealed exactly as you are, just like Jesus. That's why the Bible says later on that when, he's, when we see him, we will also be revealed. Paul says that our life is hidden with Christ in God. This is not really our life. Our life is to yet to be revealed. And what is our life? It is a life of righteous vitality, of unending holiness. What he has bought for us is a life without any sin. If you're here this morning and you have not come to Christ, your debt remains. If you're here this morning, if you've not come to Christ, you are sick because of the judgment of sin. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you are not actually alive. All the pain and sorrows and the, and the, and the ever, every now and again coming depression, all of those things, they are telling you, you are not actually in life. True life is to know God. True life is to walk with God. That's why Jesus said eternal life is knowing him. And if you don't know him, while you look like you're alive, you're not really. And you know what I'm talking about. Those, the, 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 the feelings of hopelessness and meaningless. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find true life. The life that he promises. The life that he has purchased. The life that his body went into the ground. Well, not in the ground, into the cave. To produce. Come to Christ and you will be forgiven, you will be healed, and you will live a life of righteousness that you have never known. In his name we pray.
Amen. Lord Jesus, your works are wonderful. And what you have come to do for us, we will sing about forever and eternity when all of these realities have come to their fruition. When we truly know no sense of breaking of fellowship between us and the Father. When we truly feel no tug towards sin within our own bodies. When we truly walk in a righteous way, in a manner that you walked while you were on the earth. Oh Lord, we, we will sing about these realities and we ask that you would re- uh, help us to remember them, help us to revel in them, to be full of joy because of them. Because these are not small realities, but serious ones. We praise your name, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done in accordance with the scriptures. Amen. I'm going to ask you, if you're able to, to stand uh, as we sing together, O come, O come, Emmanuel. <laughs>